Thank you so much, men. Well, good morning. Well, what an incredible honor and blessing it is to be with you this morning, as Dr. Patterson said. My name is Matt Brooks. I'm humbly the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jackson, Mississippi. For those native Mississippians in the crowd, praise the Lord for you and your studies here. I think before we study the text, I just want to have a brief time of acknowledgement of God's favor upon this institution. As I look across this platform and see men of God who have invested in me, just a humble gratitude and thanksgiving for your investment in my life, in ministry, and as you leave this place, may God grant us favor as we continue to preach the word and to reach the world for Christ. I would love to give my life to that end, and I would love to help you this morning in doing that. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Thank you so much, Dr. Patterson and Mrs. Patterson, for your hospitality. Matthew chapter 4. The one thing I want you to get from this text before you walk out of here and do life is this. Following Jesus is not a way of life, but the way of life. Following Jesus is not a way of life, but the way of life. Matthew chapter 4. There is a casual and cultural Christianity that is permeating our country right now that is frankly frightening. The results of secularism have permeated almost every facet of our culture and thus your ministry. And so what I'm going to do today from this biblical text with everything I have is to compel you to not minimize the work and call of God upon your life. Everything you do matters in light of a king who is alive, in light of a gospel that saves, in light of a person by the name of Jesus that still brings life. Following Jesus is not a way of life then, but the way of life. Now in verses 18 through 22, this passage describes to us the demands of biblical discipleship, the necessity for disciple making. It is significant that King Jesus first records in his public action in Matthew as gathering a team, a group of disciples who will commit their life to him. Now what is a disciple? Now the word disciple appears 269 times in the New Testament. Generally, a disciple is a committed follower of a master. Historically, the Greeks had disciples. The Jews had disciples. The Pharisees had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. Specifically, a disciple is one who trusts in Jesus for eternal life. However, the impetus of that trust is you committing your life to daily following, obeying, and abiding in him. So are you living a life worth following? And I want to give the rest of our time to that end. Following Jesus is not a way of life, but the way of life. Matthew chapter 4, what do we study this morning? Verses 18 through 22. And your Bible says this. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately... They left the boat and their father and followed him. Following Jesus is not a way of life, but the way of life. And King Jesus in Matthew goes by the Sea of Galilee. 
Now, the Sea of Galilee is an oval-bodied shape of water 60 miles north of Jerusalem. It is described elsewhere in the Gospels as the Lake of Gennesaret in Luke chapter 5, verse 1, as the Sea of Tiberias in John chapter 21, verse 1. And in the time of Matthew chapter 4, things are happening at this sea. In fact, most historians say there were nine populous municipalities right by this sea. Things were thriving, so much so that there were 240 commercial boats a day fishing at this sea. And so it is King Jesus, just anointed by the Holy Spirit, just tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and his first public act of ministry goes and builds him a team. And he heads not to the temple or the synagogues, but he heads to the Sea of Galilee. It is amazing to me to Jesus' investment in Galilee. The Bible says that Jesus was raised in Galilee in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Did you realize 11 of Jesus' 12 disciples were from Galilee? The greatest sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount, was given by the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 5 and 7. 19 of Jesus' 32 parables were in Galilee. 25 of his 35 miracles were performed in Galilee. Jesus had a significant investment in his thousand days of ministry in the Gospels in the city of Galilee, and you must be encouraged by that. For those of you who God is calling to go to the nations, be encouraged. For those of you who God is called to stay in this hemisphere, be encouraged because the Bible reminds us that God is already at work where he places you to work. You have everything you need to fulfill the mission that God has given your church right now in your city. Now, they may be the last people that you ever thought would be able, but guess what? That seems to be a prerequisite for the work of God. God goes to these mere fishermen and will change the world. And the same mission he gives them, he gives you. Everything you need to accomplish the mission that God has placed in your heart, he will give you in these places. So if God calls you to the jungles of Africa, if he calls you to the hills of Asia, if he calls you to stay here in West Texas, everything you need to fulfill God's mission is already there. It is up to you and I to intentionally maximize the God-given potential and mission that he has placed upon his people. I was talking to a young seminarian last night who picked me up from the airport, and as we were heading to the Riley Center, he asked me, Dr. Brooks, now that you're older in ministry, what would be some things that you would remind yourself if you were younger in ministry or for those young in ministry? I said, well, you know, first of all, thanks for that status update. I didn't realize that I was older in the ministry. <laughs> but what would I would do? What I would do with everything I've got, with every resource, with every square foot, with every talent, with every gift, I would multiply disciples to live like Jesus. Make disciples that make disciples that make disciples to live like Jesus. Invest in a few to reach the many just like Jesus. Give your life to people. Guard this pulpit with everything you've got. Preach from this word, but yet apply that word in your life in such a way that those following you will follow him. Give your life to the things that truly matter. Following Jesus is not a way of life, but the way of life. There is nothing casual or convenient about our king's call on your life. Jesus goes by the Sea of Galilee, and he meets these men who the Bible says in verse 18 
For Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. In verse 20, 21, they introduced James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were previously disciples of John the Baptist. They left John's ministry to follow Jesus. Now, I think that's very significant because, in my humble opinion, John the Baptist is the most underappreciated preacher in the entire New Testament. All the crowds were at this time not coming to Christ but John the Baptist. At the summit of his ministry and popularity, he sees Jesus and says in John 1.35, Behold the very Lamb of God. Do we have such conviction, such an intrinsic value of our worth before the King that our ministry can solely be about him and not us? It will be one of the greatest challenges of your life in leaving this place. Are people here to see me or are people here to see him? And John the Baptist, a man trained in the wilderness, teaches us more about what it's like to follow Christ, probably more than any other individual besides the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. These disciples and men left John for Jesus, there will be people in your ministry that will leave. Some you'll want to and they'll never. They'll stay. God will keep them in his kindness to remind you that ministry isn't about you, it's about him. But some of your best will leave. May you, by God's grace, make that the norm and not the exception in your ministry. May you invest to give away God's best and not to keep it. These men, at the time of Matthew chapter 4, had probably already been with Christ. They were probably there at the miracle at Canaan when Christ changed the water to wine. We don't talk about that miracle much as Baptists, so we'll move on. They had had a brief introduction to his ministry. And the king returns to them. For following Jesus is not a way of life, but the way of life. And notice what they were doing. The Bible says very clearly in verse 18, they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Notice that Jesus meets them where they are. They're not theologically trained. They haven't gone through seminary training. They are doing what they've known to do their entire lives. And Christ comes to them. And they were fishing. There are three primary methods of fishing in the New Testament. One is a hook and line. The second one is a weighted circular net that they would cast from the shallow water right by the shore. And the third would be a drag net that they would string between two boats deep into the water and go back and forth. Now Peter and Andrew in verse 18 are using the second. They are by a shore throwing a weighted circular net and casting it in to catch fish. Now, I'm an aspiring fisherman right now. I live in the great state of Mississippi. And 61% of all the inhabitants of Mississippi, 61% have both a hunting and fishing license. What a great place. <laughs> if I'm going to make disciples, if I'm going to teach fishers of men, I better learn how to fish. Now, the, the funny thing is, the biggest fish that I've ever caught was when I was a kid. My grandfather raised quarter horses in central Oklahoma and he had a pond on his 200-acre land. And this man of God would start the day fishing and would end the day fishing. 
So if I wanted to be with my grandpa at morning and at night, I better learn how to fish. So I got up one morning really early and he was on his way down the pond. I said, wait, wait, I wanna come with you. I just don't have a fishing pole. My grandpa said, I can take care of that. And so he cuts off a limb from a tree, ties some string to this branch and says, here you go. I said, well, this isn't a fishing pole. I said, yeah, it is, it is now. <laughs> and so we're sitting there talking and enjoying life, and I caught about an eight-pound catfish that day, the largest catfish I've ever caught. In fact, the story, the fish gets a little bit bigger every time I tell it, so it was, it was about this big. <laughs> Here's my point. Little pole, big fish. Jesus desires not just your competence, but your obedience. Fishermen were not wealthy or educated. In fact, Jesus' disciples had very little religious training at all. Not one of them was chosen from the rabbis. Not one of them was chosen from the Pharisees. Not one of them was chosen from the priests. Instead, Jesus called common men to an uncommon calling. They were sinful, impatient, proud, cowardly. Most of them can describe your deacons in your church. God comes to these men desiring not just their competence, but their obedience. What is it in your life that God is compelling you to do? What is it in your ministries and in your church that you have to do in biblically searching the scriptures? May God give you the boldness and the courage to do nothing more and nothing less than what he is asking you to do. The majority of your ministry will be seen in light of not just how you apply your competence and training. 99% of all the pastors in the world do not have the access to the training that you're given right here in this institution. However, the extension of your ministry will not be based upon that competence, but your obedience. Compelling men and women, boys and girls, to do the revealed will of God. And I'll tell you frankly, in 15 years of ministry, your most heartened critics will not be the outside culture, but will be inward members who love an institution more than a savior, who will hold to their traditions more than the gospel, and will be more centered upon their own comforts than the very God of the universe who still changes lives. Following Jesus is not a way of life, but the way of life. How is your obedience to what God has called you to do? The Bible says very clearly that Jesus, from this picture, gives a command that is still changing lives. The Bible says in verse 19, Jesus says, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The command here is literally, come here, follow after me. It signifies really two things. One, a sudden, obedient submission. That from this moment, you are no longer in charge. From this moment, Andrew and Peter, James and John, you are not in control. I am, for I'm the king. Obedient submission. Secondly, a continuous imitation of Jesus in one's life. To follow Jesus is not just about information, but transformation. 
He called these men where they were to lead them to where they were destined to be because only Jesus Christ can do such things. Did you realize that throughout the entire Gospels that Jesus over 20 separate times commands his followers to follow him? If we're not careful in a casual, cultural Christianity that we'll think that this is just the exception. This is for seminary students who can get through both Hebrew and Greek. Good luck with that, by the way. Can I tell you that this is the norm? It was the normal pattern, even in Jewish life, for a prospective disciple to be approached by a rabbi and to request to study with them, to submit and can imitate them continually. In contrast, Jesus pursues and recruits his disciples and demands they give up everything to follow him. Following Jesus has no ending, just a beginning. And God has been so gracious to teach me that. If I were to hang out with you when I was in high school, I could tell you unequivocally, despite my five foot nine, hundred pound something body screams otherwise, that God had created me to play professional baseball. God in his kindness had blessed me tremendously to do that. I was an all-state baseball player, and I even made one minuscule All-American team out of high school, so I was an all-state All-American baseball player and had the opportunity to play Division I baseball at Kansas State University. I was a Big 12 baseball player for a brief, brief season. And so I was playing Division I baseball in the Big 12, and then just like these disciples, in one day and one conversation, my life changed forever. I was brought into our head coach's office. I'd only seen him twice that entire semester. And he told me, Maddie, the money that we were gonna give to you in August when I was in your living room with your family is no longer available. We're gonna bring in five guys of the semester and the money that we were gonna give to you, we're now gonna give to them. Well, this man didn't know that my family needed that money. My dad was a postal worker for 35 years. One of the hardest working men that I've ever met in my life. But in regard to financial blessing, we were blessed in other ways. My mom was a mom. The most important vocation God will ever give you as a woman. But in regard to monetary blessing, not so much. My sisters, as I was the oldest of three, had dreams and aspirations of their own. And so here I was, a Division I baseball player, had worked my entire life, decade of experience, thousands of games. And in one 20-minute conversation, it was over. It became apparent that when this man began to talk to my dad, that I was no longer gonna play baseball at Kansas State University. And so I shook the man's hand and walked out of the room. Went to my apartment, threw my cell phone as hard as I could. I truthfully didn't hit anything, which is probably part of my problem. I was an overwhelming offensive player. They basically just tried to hide me somewhere out in the outfield defensively and collapsed in the floor. About 10 minutes later, my phone rings, and it's my parents who have had a profound impact on my life. Moms and dads in this room, do you have any idea how big a deal you are? Do you have any idea what following Jesus with everything you have, not just a way of life, but the way of life, can change generationally your family? I've seen it done in mine. And my parents said, Matt, we are overwhelmed just like you are. You're crushed. But our God is in control. 
And we're going to write down five junior colleges, son. And we're going to see what the Lord does. So I prayed with them and hung up the phone. And about 15 minutes later, 15 minutes, my phone rings. And my parents, you're not going to believe this. Literally the first college we called, the first one, they offered you a full ride. And your mom and I decided, you're going there. <laughs> I said, well, that's, that's incredible. Where is it? They said, oh, Matt, you're not going to believe it. Where is it? It's Northern Oklahoma College, son. I'd been in Oklahoma my entire life. I'd never heard of this place. <laughs> Northern Oklahoma College. They said, oh, yeah, Matt, it's in Tonkawal. Tonkawal? Where in the world is Tonkawal? <laughs> well, apparently, son, it's in Northern Oklahoma. <laughs> so when you know it, in a school that you never heard of, in a town that I assure you, you do not want to be in. They literally had a sonic in a junior college. <laughs> I met my wife the very first class. I've had, by God's grace now, the opportunity to share this story all over our country to tens of thousands of people. And I always tell our young adults and college kids, go to your eight o'clock class. It'll change your life. I don't care it's Hebrew. I don't care it's Greek. Go to your 8 o'clock class. It's worth it. And it was the gospel through Brenda, the unconditional love of Jesus Christ toward me and others that changed my life. Later that summer, I had an opportunity to go with Brenda to her church, and we went to this tiny small town in southern Oklahoma where literally the largest Baptist summer camp, False Creek, resides. And I was a baseball player who loved Jesus. And I had several buddies who were youth pastors. And I got to share the gospel with about five to 600 students that week. And you and I both know the only thing better than seeing one person accept Christ is seeing the next person accept Christ. And by about Wednesday of that week, it became apparent to me that the king of the universe had not created me to play professional baseball, but to lead a church that will take his gospel to the ends of the earth. And by God's grace, I've been doing it ever since. I say all of that to say this. Jesus says, follow me. Your ministry cannot be managed until it has been mastered. So what are your dreams? What are your passions? What are your comforts? And lay all of those aside for the very thing that Christ is calling you to do. Now, here's a little side note. I left False Creek that week fully knowing that God in my heart had called me to do the ministry. And the first people I called to talk about this was my parents, Mike and Kathy Brooks. And when I told them exactly what I just told you, you know what my dad told me? He said, Manny, don't do it. Don't do it, son. You'll go to a church and they'll eat you alive. You'll go to a church and you'll preach the word faithfully and a majority of people will not listen to you. You'll lead meetings to fulfill the Great Commission and your leadership will, for the most part, be apathetic or could care less. Don't do it. Don't put your family through that. Unless, son, 
The Lord has called you to do it. And if God has called you to do it, you do it with everything you've got until you go to him or he comes for you. Follow me. Your ministry cannot be managed until it has been mastered. The greatest inhibitor of fulfilling the mission of God through your church could be you, pastor. We must lay aside all things that do not fulfill the Great Commission. We must set aside all dreams and comforts that are centered upon us and not him. And we must pursue with everything we've got and build a kingdom that will reign forever for a true king whose name is Jesus Christ. Few churches get this. Did you realize that 85% of all churches in America are declining, plateaued? I've seen some demographers say it's as high as 92%. Currently right now in America, 82.5% of, of all residents don't go to church anywhere on Sundays. We have a casual culture that is based and centered upon following ourselves and not Jesus. May we remind ourselves the simple truths of this text that kingship empowers followership. Who is king of your life? Who is king of your church? Who is king of your families? May King Jesus reign in and through us, and may that be demonstrated to all through a life that says following Jesus is not a way of life, but the way of life. And you know, if you do that with God in his kindness through his son will do, Jesus says in verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus does it. Jesus promises, for this command is fused with a promise that Jesus will empower and equip these men to do exactly what he's called them to do. Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, transforms these men. And as a result, his activity will be their activity. It is the Holy Spirit that empowered every facet of Jesus' ministry. Every facet. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit was there in the conception of Christ in Luke chapter 1. It was the Holy Spirit that anointed Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 that it was literally the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead. It is this same Spirit that leads and guides you in your ministry. In fact, did you realize that every time in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, when someone was filled with the Spirit, they immediately proclaimed God's word. John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, verse 14. Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. The apostles in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. It is power that precedes ministry. Jesus' power through the Holy Spirit is not something you do for him but something he does through you. 
How does the Spirit work? Overwhelmingly through the Word. Did you realize that the average American owns 4.4 Bibles? I don't even know how that 0.4 is possible. It's just, we, we probably can't find them, so we just, yeah, 0.4. Tragically, the American Christian reads their Bible about 10 minutes a month. 20% of all American Christians confess, so they don't even read their Bibles at all. I pray to God that is not true of you. The question is not do you own a Bible, but does the Bible own you? When was the last time you read the Bible just to hear God speak? When was the last time that you came to the scriptures with an awe and wonder of the revealed will of God? When was the last time that you prioritized time in your calendar and among your teams and people to just read and hear the word of God speak? It's amazing to me this biblical pattern throughout the New Testament. Remember what the Bible says in Acts 1.8? And you will receive power, Jesus says to his disciples, and be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Being a witness, a testifier of truth is contagious. Did you, word, do you realize the word witness is mentioned 167 times in the New Testament? Now here's something else fascinating. Of these apostles, once indwelt by the Holy Spirit through the word of God, God began to do miraculous things. And of the 40 miracles listed in the book of Acts, 39 of them are performed outside the church. Power precedes ministry. Jesus' power through the Holy Spirit is not something you do for him, but something he does through you. So what is it that through the word that the Spirit is working and teaching you. You know, we're hearing amazing stories right now from our INB. Amazing. Movements of God that this world has never seen. People coming to Christ in incredible rates. Some 35,000 a day in some parts of this world. 25,000 a day. 20,000 people a day in India. It almost makes you wonder what in the world we're doing here. But of these stories we're finding very clear patterns. One, men and women called of God. Two, a reliance upon the word of God to do the work of God. So much so, where the average Christian in America has 4.4 Bibles, most people around the world don't have any. And so they're taking books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, some of the general epistles. And they're literally taking them and giving chapters to chapters to all of these pastors. And they are seeing amazing things happen when people preach but obey the word of God. You see, the work of God in you is not for you. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. God saved you with someone else in mind then and works in you 
to work among them. That is why the most important thing you will do as the man of God is to give your life completely to the word of God and thus the spirit of God for the glory of God. And it is my conviction that we have 85% of our churches that are plateaued, dead, declining, lifeless churches because we have powerless pulpits. We have too few people of God that are overwhelmed and consumed by God's word. May we be people who live so radically alive to God that those who follow us will follow him. Following Jesus is not a way of life, but the way of life. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now what would you do? Notice the response of these men in verse 20. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. For James and John, it was the same thing in verse 22. And immediately they left the boat and their father and they, they followed him. It was the great philosopher C.S. Lewis said it well when he says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time or so much of your work or money. I want you. The abruptness of Jesus' command is outmatched only by the immediacy of the disciples' response. The pattern of your life reveals the reality of your beliefs. And without hesitation, these men left everything. Now, interestingly, the word nets in verse 21 is different than in verse 18. And it implies that both James and John were of a wealthier class than Peter and Andrew. I say all of that to say this. Following Jesus meant for these men an abandonment of their jobs, their families, their friends, their possessions, and their comforts. Why in the world would they do this? Why? I mean, why would such blue-collar men as fishermen who literally live meal to meal why would they leave that comfort? Why would they leave that security? Why would they leave their friends and families behind and follow Jesus? Well, why would you? I mean, why in the world are you here? Why would you leave your families and come here? Why would you feel like God is calling you to go around the world in some of the toughest places to share the gospel? Why are some of you called to stay? You see, the why is always an indicator, church, of the who. It was because once you really know Jesus, your life can never be the same. Once you genuinely know our King, your life from that moment can never be the same. These men knew, just like you and me, everything I need, everything I truly need, he solely 
And there are five billion people on this planet that do not believe that. There are over two billion people on this planet that do not have access to such knowledge as you. 82.5% of all Americans do not believe that. So when you're in your study, when you are learning languages, context, and history, may it be to the end of a king who you know everything you need he truly has. And may we with everything we've got lead our families, our churches, and our communities in such a way with such boldness and with such compassion to tell them if you will repent of your sin and believe in the gospel, you shall be saved. And I know God can change you because I've seen him change me. Following Jesus then is not a way of life. It is the way of life. And Southwestern, as you preach the word and reach the world, may it be to that end. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we praise you today for a king that is not dead but alive. For a kingdom that is not sterile but real. For a gospel that is truly good news in a bad news world. God, the potential in this room, multiply it. The faith in this room, God, maximize it. Father, from those who will leave this institution and go to the ends of the earth, grant them favor. Grant them conviction to follow you not as a way of life, but the way of life. Father, for those that you call to stay, may we, like generations before, look up to a king who still saves. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In the meantime, may we go for you. We love you, our king. May your richest blessings be upon these people, this seminary, and its leadership. And may your favor reside as we preach the word and reach the world. We love you, our King. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.